0: I told a friend I was uh, coming to do this talk and she said, oh, you're going to do your two degrees rant, are you? And I said, you're right, I am. So I'm going to do a two degrees rant Um, and uh, let me just jump in, I'll probably talk for about uh, 35 minutes, 40 minutes and then hopefully have lots of time for discussion. Uh, Death by degrees. So uh, I will skip over this. Super quickly because it needs very little introduction here. If you're here at this conference, you already know about climate change Um, Climate change is the kind of meta context of our lives for the uh, For the near and far future. There certainly is scientific consensus. I will um, Brook no disagreement with that. I mean there are people who disagree, but the broad scientific consensus the uh, Intergovernmental uh, planned on uh, panel on climate change process has established beyond Credible doubt that, in fact, we do—we are in the midst of climate change. Um, that literally planetary systems are at risk. This is no small thing. Um, the cause is anthropogenic, uh, uh, human causes. The carbon dioxide is the main greenhouse gas, but not not the only one. And the threat is real. It is imminent. It is already evident. Uh, it will escalate rapidly. And here's the real problem: is so much is unknown. There are complex feedbacks in uh, geophysical systems that. We don't understand, and we can't even begin to predict. Um, so the alarm has been raised uh, in, in no small measure due to the uh, work of the Intergovernmental Pan- Plan- Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and apparently by most of the world's leaders, both uh, uh, political leaders and uh, civil society leaders, um, the alarm has been received. I mean, you hear language uh, even coming out of the dismal Copenhagen uh, conference. Um, you hear language that uses uh, terms of urgency, and, and yes, this is a planetary crisis, and yes, this is a catastrophe, and we all understand that there's, there's not going to be any environmental progress unless we address climate change. So if you're working on other environmental issues, that's great, and in fact we need people to keep their eye on other balls. But climate change really is kind of the, the meta context here. And uh, economies and lives, um, and certainly ecosystems, hang in the balance. So that level of scale a scale of threat that kind of scale of of uh, of challenge requires of course policy leadership and action at a concomitant scale big threats big leadership so we need global urgent effective scale relevant leadership that incorporates uncertainty it doesn't look good because if that's the kind of leadership we need that's not what we're getting and certainly anyone who followed the Copenhagen conference will um, will agree with that. Um, we're not getting bold, bold leadership. There's no plan for going kind to of re-envisioning the globalized economy. There's no plan to rapidly reconfigure the economy. There's no equivalent kind of like race to the moon. It's like okay, we're going to put all our resources, all our thoughts, all our energy, all our intelligence to this one this one problem. It's not happening. So, but there are plans. There are kind of there are overarching policy initiatives and directions. So what's the plan? It's M-A-D, MAD. And those of you, I see many of you in the audience are old enough to remember the other MAD program, usually Assured Destruction um, of the Cold War. Well, this is MAD II, what I call MAD. Uh, Here's the plan. It's really a three-part plan. Markets, we're going to master climate change through the markets. That was a statement actually came out of the G8 which used that phrase, which is such a wonderful phrase. Um, Adaptations, people are going to adapt, and we're going to draw a line of degrees of dangerousness. And we're going to, as long as we're under some line of degrees of dangerousness, we're going to be okay. So um, I'd like to uh, kind of walk us through an analysis of this MAD plan. And uh, I'll, I'll start at the end. With degrees is my degrees rant with the two-degree solution. Many of you have heard, I'm sure you're familiar with the notion, this kind of emerging consensus, that we're okay if the planet is warmed two degrees Celsius, so it's about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, um, uh, uh, beyond um, 1990 levels. So there's all this rhetoric about holding the line at two degrees before dangerous levels are reached. And that uh, the dangerous levels quote actually came out of an EU conference. Um, Nicholas Stern, who's a very influential fellow. How many of you have heard of Nicholas Stern in climate change? Smattery. smattering. Nicholas Stern, he's this unlikely... Someone called him the uh, kind of rock star of climate change. He's the most unlikely rock star you could ever imagine. He's a British banker. Um, he's an economist. Uh, and he was um, asked by the British government in... Uh, where are we now? Um... late 1990s to um, uh, early 2000s um, to do a kind of overarching report on the threat that climate change posed uh, to Britain but to the world and uh, Nicholas Stern's report called referred to as the report, the Stern report, um, has become very influential. In fact I would say the Stern report is as influential certainly for policy leaders and government leaders as the IPCC process. I mean if you put that Stern report and the IPCC report side by side; those are the two kind of bookends of policy, um, kind of education, and the, uh, that set the frame for inter- for global policy on climate change. And actually, the Stern report is quite it's quite readable, and it's quite interesting to read. And if you want to know more about it, I, I would urge you to read most of it's most of it's now on the web, and certainly bits and pieces of it. You can buy it uh, online through any of the online booksellers for uh, for cheap. Uh, so anyway, so the Stern Report has become a very influential document and kind of doctrine um, in the whole discussion of clim- climate change, and Stern clearly identifies that we need to stay below the dangerous two-degree threshold. The EU has a policy that uh, is to stabilize global warming at a level that would prevent what's called dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, that is two degrees. The world, dozens and dozens and dozens of environmental groups are on board. The World Wildlife uh, uh, Federation for one. Um, Al Gore thinks two degrees is a good idea. Uh, Angela Merkel, the uh, Chancellor of Germany, um, has been pushing two degrees for a long time. And she was in fact way out ahead of the rest of the G8 for a long time. And uh, she calls it a historic plan. Um, the Copenhagen Accord, um, uh, although everything about that came out of Copenhagen is non binding, um, came up with a non binding two degree target. So, two degrees, kind of that's where people are saying it's like, okay, as long as we can get to two degrees and hold on there, we're going to be okay. And uh, this is where my rant starts, just in case you know. <laughs> it's unclear where these two degrees came from. I mean, it really is unclear. It, it's not ever explained. It's just kind of put out there. It's got this magic number, two degrees, as though somehow it follows in some natural way from the climate models. Well, it doesn't. It actually has no bearing on the climate models. But to say two degrees kind of gives this impression of precision, and it gives the impression that this is a target that is drawn from science and from science models. When you start to think about two degrees, though, it reveals this extraordinary hubris. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence, even if you said, even if you said two degrees is a sane, scientifically sound, um, well-thought-out target, climate target, there's absolutely no evidence that we know how to hold the line at two degrees. There's no evidence that we can. The earth is not like an oven that you can, like... (laughs) turn it on to 350 degrees and then turn it off. I mean, there's notion that we can somehow like get up to two degrees and then hold. is completely ridiculous. Um, it frames kind of as a policy backdrop, say, it frames the earth as a machine, it's kind of like, oh, well, there's this oven and we're gonna put up two degrees and then we'll stop it. Um, the environment, it absolutely frames the environment simply as a, as a system that we can master many people say, well, but you know, in the kind of the real politics of um, policy making and international agreements, maybe we need a target. You can't just say we want to prevent more warming. Maybe you need a target. So it's like, okay, maybe we need, I'm not sure we need that kind of target, but maybe we do. But in that case, why two degrees? Why not one and a half degrees? Why not two and a half degrees? I mean, why two degrees? And certainly, as feminists, we have long experience with the relativity of danger. And so the first question, if two degrees is being put out there as the line beyond which there's too much danger, and before which it's not really all that dangerous, the first question that is a feminist, I is, well, dangerous for whom, (laughs) first of all? And secondly is, so less than two degrees of warming is not dangerous? And when you start to deconstruct this two degrees, you start to see that it is a line defined not by climate science at all. It's got absolutely nothing to do with climate science. um, Several months ago, I was writing an article, another rant about two degrees, um, and I uh, emailed a network of climate scientists that I know because I I really was actually trying to pinpoint the historical emergence of this two degrees because it is a bit of a puzzle where it came from. I think I figured out as econo- a Yale economist um, in the 1980s, but that's the first known, known reference to two degrees. Anyway, so I emailed my, my, my friends in a network of climate scientists, and I said, hey, hey guys, does anyone know where this two degrees came from? And um, I got back all these great answers. People say, well, you know, it's bigger than one and smaller than three, or, <laughs> you know, and someone said, well, you know, if you hold your finger up to the wind, it seems like a good number. I mean, this, this two degrees has nothing to do with climate science. And when you start to look at it, you see that, in fact, it is a line defined by privilege, power, and geography. Two degrees certainly is not good for flora and fauna. Now again, before I run through this, this, this quick list, I need to say what I say at the bottom in, in bold. There's a high degree of uncertainty about specific thresholds. In fact, climate scientists are very reluctant to say what will happen at one degree of warming, what will happen at two degrees of warming. I mean, there's a great deal of reluctance, but in broad brush, We know that already at one degree of warming, we have flora and fauna, rain shifts, um, increasing malaria, extreme weather events. Uh, Whether today's weather is part of that or not, we don't know. Glacier melts, floods, droughts, permafrost instability, which is a really big problem for those of you who know about the role of permafrost in holding much of it being a big carbon sink for the earth. If the permafrost starts to melt, we're we're done for. Fish toxic climb, one to two degrees uh, warming, arctic mammal species extinction. That's the polar bear, kiss that polar bear goodbye. Uh, One to three degrees, widespread coral bleaching, Uh, perhaps some models say up to 80% and coral mortality. Uh, About one and a half, two and a half degrees, extinctions predicted of 20 to 40% of known animal and plant species. At two degrees, some models suggest that in fact, tropical forest ecosystems will collapse. And if you get not much beyond two degrees, you start to look at really significant Ice sheet melts, sea level rise, global um, global and atmospheric uh, collapse or reversals of uh, circulation systems, ocean acidification, coastal erosion, Arctic ecology shifts, and small island submergences. Bye bye, small islands. Um, so two degrees of warming is not actually a very um, uh, salubrious target for most of the world's uh, flora and fauna. It's not good for most people in the world either. At one to two degrees, we start to see um, decreases in crop productivity, particularly in the tropics and low latitudes, up to estimates of up to 50% of yield declines. Um, At two degrees, you start to experience severe water shortages, perhaps up to to a billion people affected. Um, 40 to 60 million more people exposed to malaria. And um, as Janet said, and I'll talk about this briefly a little later, I've been doing a project in Mozambique um, and they're seeing malaria spreading into areas where it hasn't before, and um, it, it's a very serious um, illness. I think sometimes in the West we think of malaria as, you know, a relatively minor problem that makes you sick but you get better. But for millions of people it's not the case, millions of people die from malaria. It's particularly um, a, a, a threat to the health of pregnant women. There's a, a, a role of, of malaria, the relationship between malaria, and anemia, and pregnancy, and pregnant women are particularly a threat. Um, many millions of people subject to coastal flooding. Small island states are already affected and in fact the organization of small island states um, is asking for a 1.5 degree threshold. Um, <clears throat> they have rejected the call for a two degree threshold. Um, it isn't good for Mozambique, as, say I pull out Mozambique because that's an area that I'm currently working in, or most of the poor countries of the world. And in fact the leader of the G77 uh, group, um, the underdeveloped nations group uh, at Copenhagen said that two degrees condemns Africa to death. Um, So maybe it's actually only if you're sitting in Bonn or Paris or Washington that two degrees seems okay, because it doesn't seem okay to all those other people and plants and animals. So who is two degrees okay for? Well, the two degree complacency, the reason why everyone's like so excited about this two degrees, because it's a target that seems reasonable, of course it's not, but anyway. Uh, is based on a kind of underlying confidence in climate models that suggest, bingo, that the impacts of climate change will not be evenly distributed and that the poorest countries and the poorest people are going to suffer most of first. And that the droughts and famines and water shortages and disease exposures, all of which we know is going to happen below two degrees, is going to happen where? going to happen well in Africa or the low latitudes or the tropics or the small islands. Um, and of course, among the who's going to be affected, um, <clears throat> women disproportionately so. And in fact, the same models that the two degree buccaneers are putting their hopes on, those two degree, those same climate models suggest that there may be early benefits to up to two degree warming for temperate and cold latitude states. That is, the temperature here might increase slightly, and crop yields might increase, and the costs of heating will decrease, that there might actually be net benefits in our kind of latitude. So a two degrees threshold that the world, the bandwagon is now rolling, and everyone's jumping on this two degrees, everyone in the rich world is jumping on this two degrees, really reflects a a confidence in the prediction that climate change is going to mostly happen to them. Or at least, what could happen to them first? And there's a really smug confidence that, for industrialized states, the damage is kind of limited. So it's really, the two degrees is really a target defined by rich world men, and I use the term men advisedly, because if you look at who's making the policy around this, um, it's populated mostly by men. It's a target defined by rich world men as a reasonable environmental cost, but only for the rich world. And it kind of sets this notion that we're okay up to two degrees kind of sets a tolerance level for human-caused death it's like well we're okay up to two degrees except for those 40 million people over there who aren't okay (laughs) like what is that about it's also an approach to the environment i mean this this is an environmental issue we're talking about that is stunningly disconnected from things environmental to say that we are okay up to two degrees And again, kind of throwing overboard, well, you know, the tropical forests and the corals. I mean, it's not, this is not a target that's framed with anything like an environmental uh, mindset. Then you might say though, well, but if we kind of follow this analysis that the 2 degree threshold of dangerousness is set by people who think they're not going to be affected up to 2 degrees, why isn't it even a higher threshold? Why not, I don't know, 2.5 degrees? Or three degrees? Again, say, where does these two degrees come from? I mean, why two degrees? Why not three degrees? If we think it's going to happen to them first, why not let it go to three degrees? Turn that oven up. Well, surprise. If you look at the models and you look at the Stern report and you look at the IPCC report, about two degrees is when them becomes us. The point at which regional changes start to spill over borders, and this is the Stern Report 2006. And this is a quote from the Stern Report. The impacts of unabated climate change, that is an increase of three or four degrees and upwards, will be to increase the risks and costs of these events very powerfully. These events, he just listed some of the negative effects of climate change. Impacts on this scale, meaning at three or four degrees, could spill over national borders, exacerbating the damage further rising sea levels and other climate driven changes could drive millions of people to migrate. Oh my God, the poor people of the world are going to be uprooted and guess where they're going to come? They're going to come and try to invade us, but not up to two degrees. Up to two degrees we're okay. But in fact, if you read through the IPCC models, which does not make any policy suggestions whatsoever, the IPCC tries to situate itself as, neutral, we know the problem with neutral and objectivity, but it tries to situate itself as just, clear, just the facts. It doesn't make policy, but if you read the IPCC reports, two degrees is roughly the point at which the model suggests that global changes, the really big changes, the circulation systems, the current circulation systems, the melting of the ice sheets, is going to supersede the regional. Up to two degrees, it is, in fact, predicted to be mostly regionally and geographically specific changes. Then, also what we find is that at two degrees, this kind of faux scientific rationality meets the reasonable economic man. A meeting on the plane of two degrees. Again, looking at, and the the reason I keep mentioning Stern is he is enormously influential. And in fact, economic models are what are driving policy on climate change, much more so even than, than climate models. So two degrees also turns out to be the point at which the economists think that the cost to industrial powers of mitigating, of changing our economy, of changing the way we do business, are reasonable. So Stern again, the review, his his review, estimates the annual cost of stabilization of 500 and 550 parts per million carbon dioxide, it's up to two degrees, go through all the first sentence, Uh, up to two degrees, is a level that is significant but manageable. That is, if we allow ourselves to go to two degrees in this framework, in this cockeyed framework of two degrees, that it's going to cost us, but the costs are manageable. Anything higher, meaning in fact, setting a lower degree threshold, would substantially increase the risk of very harmful effects while reducing the expected cost of mitigation by comparatively little. Aiming for the lower end of this range, i.e., a smaller tolerable temperature rise, would mean that the cost of mitigation would rise rapidly. Anything lower than a two-degree warming target would certainly impose very high adjustment costs in the near term. So in other words, to pull in tighter and to say, as the small island states say, one and a half degrees. Stern says, too expensive, too much disruption to our economy. And then we get another aha moment. Stern continues, and Stern is not the only one here. There's money to be made there are significant new opportunities across a wide range of industries and services. Markets for low-carbon energy products are likely to be worth at least 500 billion by 2050, and perhaps more. Individual companies and countries should position themselves to take advantage of these opportunities. So what Stern is saying is, here's the really good news, guys. If we let ourselves go up to two degrees, it's a manageable economic cost for the industrialized states. Anything above that is too unmanageable. And best of all, we can make money. And so to market we go. And so the market has become the primary framework for apprehending climate change. In fact, Stern says climate change. This is is a quote, one of my favorite quotes. that gets me so, like, exercised Um, in his introduction. Climate change presents a unique challenge for economics. It is the greatest and widest-ranging market failure ever seen. Climate change is a market failure. But this is one of the leading lights in climate. Science. So now we're entering the brave new world of carbon emissions marketing. So the solution to this problem, as set up by Stern and international policymakers, is to say we'll go up to two degrees, it won't cost us too much, the damage will be over there, and we can make money. But if we frame this as a global emissions problem, and if we redistribute pollution around the globe, then, in fact, we can continue to do business as usual here. Does anyone know about these carbon markets? Are we didn't talk about them. Well, yeah, you, you know these carbon markets. So here's the idea of global carbon markets. There are two main solutions that are offered by global carbon markets. One is offsets. So rich countries or rich companies pay poor countries to offset to store carbon. So you pay poor countries to keep their forests um, so that the forests will act as global carbon sinks. The second main model of a market solution is to buy credits, in effect, that will allow you to pollute. So if a country such as Mozambique is not polluting, not contributing much to the greenhouse gas, Global greenhouse gas budget, a country such as Germany or the United States or France could pay for their unused pollution credits. That is, everyone gets the right to pollute. You get the right to pollute. And if you're not using yours, I can buy it from you. So the notion of trading emissions credits is what's at the heart of all this cap and trade. Now, suppose there's supposed to be a cap so that in this room everyone gets a certain number of credits to pollute and if you're not using it, I get to buy yours. And supposedly there's going to be a cap that will slowly lower so that over time we will collectively reduce our total pollution. Most of the trading uh, schemes have no cap on them though. It's just trade. It's just like, well, we got all this pollution going on, you're not using yours, I'll take yours. And that means I don't have to change my way of life at all. Good news, I can keep on polluting. And you're not polluting, so that's fine. You get some money from me, you don't pollute. And in fact, there's the Carbon Expos. This kind of brave new world of Carbon Expos. This is from the 2007 Expo report. It's kind of breathless excitement. Carbon Expo is the leading global trade fair and conference for emissions trading and carbon abatement solutions. World Bank is co-hosting taking place in. Now in its fourth year, this cornerstone event is the largest gathering of the GHG carbon market. This is like nuts. I mean, in some way, you know, often as a, as a teacher, I'm sure other teachers in the room use this example. If you, if you imagined you had to explain something to a Martian and you had to like, someone who totally had no context, you had to make it make sense? You could not make this make sense. I mean, first of all, and I won't spend any time on this because I could spend a lot of time on this, and people do spend a lot of time on this, but first of all, if you just say, okay, marketization, can we marketize carbon effectively? The answer is no. I mean, it's a logistical problem. We don't know really how offsets work. We don't know how carbon sinks work. Is a tree a tree a tree? So any tree absorbs a certain amount of... Greenhouse gases. There's now this plan called RED, um, reforestation something something. I can't even remember what it stands for now. There's so many. Deforestation. Right, that's right. Which is trying to actually thank you <laughs> reducing emissions from deforestation. Which is actually trying to like put a kind of tag on trees, how much carbon they can suck up or not. Um, you know, I I had a project in Costa Rica I was involved with, and they were making money. They were happy. They were making money from these offsets. They were making money from their forests and. Uh, Uh, They even had a plan where in in Canada, on your car, for your car, you could buy a bumper sticker for, I don't know, a certain amount of money, $25 or something, buy a bumper sticker that said you're offsetting the pollution from your car. And I said to my friend in Costa Rica, who was partly involved in running this offset scam, and I said, so, you know, so as a Canadian, I send you my 25 bucks, they said, do you plant a tree, or do you plant how many trees? He goes, well, we don't really plant trees, we kind of like, we count the trees we have. It's like, like, look, you know. I mean, yay for you. You make some money, you rip off like dumb Canadians and say, why not? But um, You know, you can't even, it's a very difficult process to manage. I mean, even if you took it seriously and said, this really is the way we want to go, it's a very difficult process to manage. And it also is producing very dubious environmental practices, including the clearing of lands and planting them with um, genetically modified trees that will grow fast, because as a Poor country, you might want to, in fact, have a, a lot of forests grow fast. Um, it's also promoting, of course, a rush into nuclear power. Um, um, as nuclear power, you've noticed probably has been, is being proposed as kind of the carbon offset solution. Um, ideologically, this is the, this is really ideology running amok. The and there may be people in the audience who would disagree with me on this. Um, there are certainly serious. Serious-minded people who can make a convincing argument for carbon trading, I don't buy it. I think that uh, we're developing a global climate change policy for its compatibility with the dominant economic system rather than with environmental integrity in mind. It's privatizing the atmosphere. It's like privatizing and normalizing the right to pollute. I have a right to pollute? I have a certain number of credits that I get to pollute with? It's like try explaining that to the Martians. You know, this notion that there's a right to pollute that just for money I get to have, and this is counterbalanced by this notion they're underpolluting places, underpolluting. You actually see that in the literature now, underpolluting. Mozambique is an underpolluting country. <laughs> what does that mean? It's like, you guys are nuts. Um, it, it really kind of shifts the responsibility. It's like, the good news is I get to keep polluting, and you underpolluting the poor country. You then share my global, you know, you glo- I globalize the problem and say, oh, good news, you can share the solution by allowing me to continue to pollute. Um, it also really substitutes for global responsibility of the rich for the, for the poor. And in fact, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program has suggested that carbon markets could supplement or even replace aid and debt commitments to Africa. So that's even better news for the rich countries because I get to foist my pollution off, plus I have an economic justification now for not sending aid to the poor world. Um, and it really sustains, in my view, it sustains the dominance of industrialized nations. And the underdevelopment of poor countries becomes their asset. It's like, as long as you don't develop and you don't use your pollution, that's really good news for, the, for, for me. And uh, feminists need to be careful here about when underdevelopment is defined as an asset. Um, oh, this is a quite well-known and reproduced cartoon that I love, uh, which is this big uh, developed countries smoke belching guy, I think, with a cigar saying, yo, amigo, we need that tree to protect us from the greenhouse effects. Um, there's really scant evidence that reliance on markets protects ecosystem. I mean, this rush into markets is not based on any credible expectation that markets will protect ecosystems. Um, and there's no reasonable expectation that I can see that we can tackle climate change while we maintain business as usual. And that's but that's the marketing approach. Um, and at its root, the economics assumption is that the market is a panacea for all ills. And I think, in, in my view, that economics rationality is an impoverished rationality. It's really not suitable for environmental challenges. And, and after all, I would argue, and others argue, that it is the soulless rationality of the markets that, well, got, that's got us into environmental trouble in the first place. And this is perhaps a particularly good moment in our collective lives to be critical about the promise of markets. So what's a girl to make of all this? And I'm just going to run through this very quickly because there are rich, deep literatures in all of this. So what do we know? We know that capitalism is gendered. We know that markets are gendered. We know that market mechanisms are gendered. We know that market winners tend mostly to be men. Women have been on the downside of global marketization. When the basis for sustaining life and livelihoods is commodified, women will be particularly disadvantaged. And the confusion of a market policy and a social policy has never been good for for women. What's good for markets is not necessarily good for people or the environment. Um, And in fact, there's a strong thread in much of this Discussion about winners and losers they okay, think of the Martian again coming down winners and losers. There's a strong rhetoric of climate change as an opportunity And this notion that well, they're going to be climate change winners are going to be climate change losers and if you play the market right You can be on the winning side and in March 2007 for example I was horrified by this the head of the World Resources Institute, which is a highly respectable um, uh, and respected uh, institute, but the head of the Resource Institute, Jonathan Lash, co-authored a, an article in the Harvard Business Review entitled, Competitive Advantage on a Warming Planet. This is an environmentalist. He's the head of an environmental organization. <laughs> companies, and this is one of the quotes from one of the other companies that manage and mitigate their exposure to climate change risk while seeking new opportunities for profit will generate a competitive advantage over rivals in a carbon-constrained future. The notion, this is a notion that really can only be embraced by people who think they're going to be winners, right? This notion that we're going to game the system and we're going to come out on top. And I think that particularly right now as we're looking at the global economic system in crisis, the same masters of the universe who destroyed the global economic system are destroying uh, the climate system by trying to game it. Uh, there's a lot of analysis about the masculinization of the uh, uh, kind of uh, buccaneering approach to um, to markets and what I call the carbon uh, buccaneers. The third element of this which I'll just go through very quickly is well it's like so while we are um, establishing degrees of comfort and dangerousness and we're marketizing ourselves to death what's what's really going to happen to the people who are being affected? they're going to adapt. The good news is adaptation. Um, and so there's this whole kind of industry in helping countries adapt or systems adapt. Certainly, I mean, I would be among the first to tell you that we too need to worry about adaptation because climate change is happening. Um, and uh, countries and uh, particularly in the poor world and people in the poor world are being hit hard already. And so adaptation, in fact, does have to uh, happen. But it's being heralded as part of the kind of the good news Uh, Scenario. We're going to marketize, we're going to hold the uh, temperature at two degrees, and then the rest of them are going to adapt. Um, And there's actually no engagement with the actual costs of adaptation. Um, And there's a lot of work on uh, women and crisis, and we know that women act as the shock absorbers of crisis. Um, There's also no engagement, or very little engagement, in the literature on adaptation. There's very little engagement with the limits of adaptation. I mean, some systems and some people just can't adapt. I mean, polar bears just can't adapt. There is nowhere for them to go in the next 30 years. They can't, like, morph into a new species in 30 years. Um, Island states just can't adapt. You can't build seawalls high enough to protect Tuvalu. Um, People who live in absolute poverty, and I was working with a community in Mozambique that is so poor, it is beyond the comprehension of most people um, uh, in the states. People who live in absolute poverty cannot adapt. Um, uh, And the most bankrupt idea of this whole kind of ball of wax is the notion that market incentives are needed to take action on climate change. I've had many serious, kind of intense, earnest discussions with people who say, Yeah, but Joni, you're so, you know, you're so unrealistic. And market incentives, we need market incentives because without market incentives, things won't happen. And I say, and the incentive of not destroying the planet is not enough of an incentive? What about the incentive of not putting hundreds of millions of people and the large share of the planetary ecosystems at risk? That is not enough of an incentive? We now need a market incentive? If that's the case, I think we're in uh, more trouble than any of us realize. Okay, so let me end briefly by saying what do I think feminists can contribute to this, other than occasion going off on rants. I think it is a, a time-honored and important feminist role to say the emperor has no clothes, that we can challenge this. We certainly can challenge the two-degree target. We certainly can challenge the market. Um, we certainly can challenge carbon, carbon marketing um, because I now hear carbon marketing talked about as though it's kind of the, the normal, expected, kind of rational, of course we're going to carbon market. And again, and it's a very important in my view, stand up and say, you guys are frickin' nuts if you think that carbon marketing is going to get us out of this. Um, I think we have experiences uh, from uh, women's lives elsewhere that the marketization of life does not actually um, generally produce uh, positive outcomes. I think we need to challenge our brothers and sisters in the environmental movement to account for their complicity in this. I was shocked when I saw that article by Jonathan Lash trumpeting the climate losers and winners. I actually was shocked. Um, um, And so I think those of us who are engaged in environmental movements, as many of us probably are, I think that we are well positioned to to raise challenges. I think that we need to insist that women and feminist perspectives be integrated into global climate change policy discussions. Um, I I think we're going to talk about this later, but women are very much on the margins of this whole international um, discourse and debate. Not that I mean, women can be as stupid as men, (laughs) we all know that, not that just putting women in the room is going to make everything perfect, but you need a diversity of opinions and you certainly don't just need women, embodied women, you need women who have feminist perspectives and men who have feminist perspectives. I think we need to articulate clear policy alternatives. So what are some of those policy alternatives? And I'll end on this note. Well, there are a lot of kind of non-market principles of environment and one principle is the do no harm principle. There are precautionary principles that if you don't know what's going on in the ecosystem, you stop until you do know more. Um, There's a whole kind of caring tradition in economics. Nancy Fulbury uh, has developed this um, particularly, but uh, there are lots of people who are contributing to this. There are notions of mutual responsibility, but these are not considered to be serious policy frameworks. These are feminized policy frameworks. If you try and walk into a climate change policy meeting and start talking about caring, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, you will be looked at like you're the idiot. And so, in some ways, the, the whole kind of discourse is turned on its head. That people who do k- talk about caring and environmental responsibility and precaution and do no harm and the incentive of not destroying ecosystems are considered to be the irrational outside, the irrational coax. Whereas people who talk about carbon marketing and um, two degrees of safety are considered to be kind of the rational centrists. And so there's a, a real distortion um, in the way that our discussion is framed. Um, And and I'll end here just saying one of the things we can do is just say no. We can cap and not trade carbon. I mean, regulations do work. Social policy regulations have a time-honored history of working. For example, anywhere else other than the United States, when there is a perceived need that a common good needs to be protected from unrestrained marketeering, as in healthcare, It is done. We regulate all kinds of things. We don't need to trade carbon. We can just regulate it. We can just cap carbon. There is evidence that strong, credible, regulatory action works. Is that a policy proposal that's going anywhere? No, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that we can't hold on to it as a viable alternative. So um, I think that we're in really big trouble. I think that um, there is time for um, strong, robust, uh, well-intentioned action on climate change, but there's not a lot of time. And I think that all of us, in every way and every day, to the extent that we can do something to raise these issues, I think that we have that obligation, and even more so, of course, in the rich world than in the poor world, because we're the ones who are actually causing this problem. Um, So we're the ones who really actually need to come up with um, regulating our own actions so that we minimize uh, the continuing harm we're doing to the planet.